You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Great job, by the way, making Christmas about Jesus. Great job being here. Great job coming tonight to worship Jesus, to make him uh, the, the, what your Christmas is all about. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing, and I'm really uh, thankful that you took time to worship Jesus tonight. And may we now open our hearts and open our ears to receive all that he has from us. Uh, Christmas is such a fine, fun time of year. Uh, how many of you guys open up your Christmas presents on Christmas Eve tonight? How many of you? Interesting. Last service, a lot more. Uh, so you guys are the ones who do it the right way on, sun, on Christmas morning. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Lisa and I were talking about our, our past Christmases with our kids when the kids were little. And I remember uh, one year uh, when our kids were real little, we have four children. Uh, when our kids were real little, we decided to do a giant trampoline, ground level, in the backyard, remodel the, the yard kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, I dug, it was an 18-foot trampoline. I dug a four-foot pit and uh, you know, had this gaping hole. It looked like a small swimming pool in my backyard. And we did it with AstroTurf all around and everything and cemented in the, the poles and everything. And uh, my kids were little, and I didn't want to tell them, hey, you're getting a trampoline for Christmas. So they would say, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working on the sprinklers. Because uh, there was PVC pipe everywhere as I'm doing the irrigation system. And this went, you know, it took a couple weeks to get this project done. And uh, so there it was, Christmas morning. And uh, we go, hey, got a surprise for you. And we bring all the kids out into the backyard, and there's this ground-level trampoline with, you know, beautiful astroturf all around. And and no net on the sides because you don't have to worry about them falling off its ground level. And, and they go out and they're just jumping away like crazy. And, and my son Ryan asks as he's jumping, Daddy, did you fix the sprinklers? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, yeah, buddy, the sprinklers are all fixed now. And, and uh, I say all that to say it is so fun to think of a gift that will really touch someone's life. It is so fun to be able to give something that is just what that person needed. Something that will show your love for them and your, the time that you took to let them know how special they are. And may I ask you to ponder the miracle of the incarnation. To ponder what God has done for you in coming into the earth as a man and going to a cross on our behalf to purchase our salvation because what we needed above anything else was redemption, was uh, to be saved from our sins. And how amazing to consider that the creator entered into his creation all for the purpose of redeeming us. And tonight we've gathered together as one church family to worship him and to say thank you for such a thoughtful gift, to say thank you for the love that is in this gift. I was thinking about the miracle of the incarnation as you ponder like what God did for us. It is staggering. Can you imagine God becoming a man? The Bible says that he was, he was fully God, uh, that he, he didn't empty himself of any of his divinity. He had all of his divine nature. But in Philippians, it tells us what's called the kenosis is the theological term. It's where he empties himself of all of his glory. 
has all his uh, divinity, right? I mean, he was still omniscient. He was still omnipresent. He was still uh, sovereign over all things. Uh, and yet he empties himself of his glory and he becomes a man and dwells among us. And think for a moment, I, I, like what analogy can I give this? Uh, how many of you ever gone to the Del Mar Fair and like thrown that ping pong ball and got a little goldfish in a cup? Well, imagine you becoming a goldfish in one of those little jars to redeem some other little useless goldfish that you could care less about in that jar right next to it. And now you begin to have an idea. And as you become that goldfish, you keep all your faculties. You keep your intelligence. You keep your abilities. But now you're confined to being a goldfish. And that is a pale comparison. There is a lot more similarities between us and a goldfish than there is between God becoming a man. And we see just how far he stooped to purchase our redemption. What a gift. We've been looking at this uh, series that we're in, uh, God in a Manger, and uh, a recap. We talked about, we started off with Jesus being the light of the world. And we titled that message, The Light of Christmas. And we looked at a couple Bible prophecies. If you're new uh, to church, welcome. And a prophecy is something that God spoke through the mouths of the prophets, through men. He inspired them, and he foretold uh, what was going to happen at the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah that was foretold from the beginning of time. There are over 365 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. And they were exquisitely detailed. And uh, uh, from the beginning of time, God has been foretelling this plan of salvation that he laid out for you, that he laid out for us before earth was even began. And one of those prophecies we looked at was in the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, it is, uh, Isaiah was a prophet 700 years before Jesus came. And uh, here's that verse. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, read it with me, if you will. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And uh, here is a messianic prophecy. And I want to break it down a little bit. We talked about this. Notice what it says. It says the people, that's us. And where do we walk? We walk in darkness. God acknowledges that we live in a dark world. Darkness in the Bible means a couple of things. It means evil. And we live in a world that has all kinds of evil in it. What is, the, what is going on in this world that there's so much hatred, there's so much war, there's so much... Uh, it's a dark world. Uh, darkness also means ignorance in the Bible. Uh, I'm in the dark on that one. Uh, that means you don't know what to do. And, and we go through life, this life that is full of evil, and then we go through it with ignorance on knowing how to do things. So we have this relationship that's really important to us. And yet it's struggling. And we don't know how to fix it. And we've got this business partner who we need to get along. And, and we're walking in darkness. And we don't know how to fix it. And we don't have the wisdom and the discernment to be able to speak into a child's life. A child who's struggling. And, and we don't know how to fix it. We can see them going off the wrong direction. And we don't know how to fix it. And here's what this verse says. The people, that's us, that have walked in darkness, 
have what? Seen a great light. The Messiah coming into the world and showing us the path. Showing us the, the way to uh, deal, the wisdom, the discernment, the knowledge, to the teaching to have light in this world that we live in so we can make these relationships work. And uh, look what it says. The, those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, and man, it is. It is. They've seen a great light. And so that's what Christmas is all about. That's what uh, making Jesus the Lord of your life is all about. It's about having his light come into our life and begin to illuminate our path that we don't have to walk in the darkness, tripping and stumbling over things we don't even know how to fix, but we can have wisdom and discernment from the word of God and from Jesus himself to know how to do these things. Amazing prophecy. Another one that we looked at was Isaiah 9, 6, uh, which tells us, let me hear you read it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The first prophecy told us what, uh, what was going to happen, right? We're, we're going to get light. And now we're told how this light is going to come into the world. Well, it's going to come through a child. Unto us a child is born. But it's not just any child, it's the Son of God. Unto us a son is given. And notice the titles for this Messiah that's coming. These are titles that belong to God and to God alone. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Titles that belong to God and God alone. And so here we see just a couple of these amazing prophecies. And here in these prophecies in Isaiah 9, we see how the Messiah is coming. He's coming as a child to bring salvation to the world. In Isaiah 53, we see why the Messiah is coming. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. And by his stripes, we are healed. We're cleansed of our sins. In Isaiah, 7, excuse me, Isaiah 9, we see how he was going to come. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah would tell us, Isaiah 53, why he's coming. He's coming to take the punishment of our sins, to give us eternal life. And so this is the amazing story of Christmas. Uh, and this is what uh, God is doing uh, uh, in our lives through this Christmas story. And it's interesting because uh, this gets lost in Christmas. Um, for you guys who are Bible scholars, how many of you remember the story of Jesus getting lost? Do you remember that? And you say, why in the world is that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Jesus was lost. And where he was lost is his parents were going to one of the feasts in Israel. It happened to be the feast of Passover. Jesus was 12 years old. And at 12 years old, the parents thought he was with some of the relatives. And the relatives thought he was with the parents. And, and they're going through. And they're, suddenly they're like, where's Jesus? Kind of a big deal when you lose Jesus. Right? Like, it's not a good thing. Uh, and if you ever wonder, like, why is that in the Bible? Well, here's why. The Passover was all about the Messiah. And Israel had lost the Messiah in Passover. 
You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. Passover was all about God delivering the nation Israel out of the bondage of slavery, Egypt. Egypt in the Bible, a picture of the world. And God delivering them out of the bondage of slavery. How? By taking a lamb's blood and putting that blood over the doorpost of your house. And if you did that, the angel of death would pass over. That's where we get the name. Pass over your house and death would have no power over you. And then the next morning you were delivered and you went free by the mighty hand of God. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the problem, the Jewish people had lost Jesus, lost the Messiah in Passover. And so Jesus at 12 years old demonstrates that to the nation Israel. Do you understand? And you say, why are you telling me all this? Here's why. Because I believe the same thing has happened to our Christmas. We've lost the purpose of Christmas. We have lost the significance of Jesus in our Christmas, in our worship, in our celebration. And Jesus is the very purpose of Christmas. Unbelievers think the message of Christmas is that our love and our kindness will prevail. And if we work together, we can end poverty. We can end injustice. We can end violence and usher in unity and peace on earth. And we've lost Jesus in Christmas. That, by the way, will never happen. It's not possible for man to usher that kind of world in by our own efforts and by loving each other. We are too evil. We're too dark, if you will. I saw a, uh, uh, a debate uh, with Vivek Ramaswamy, and I like that guy. He's charismatic, and I've, you know, I've been listening to him. And, and in this debate, you know, he's up there, and he's like just full of charisma, and he's talking. And he says, yes, our economy is a mess, and yes, our national debt is at $34 trillion, and yes, our borders are being ran over, and we've got tens of thousands of people coming from all over the world into our borders every single day, and yes, we have racism that's a problem, and, and we have hatred, and mor morality is out of control, and there's human trafficking, and, and there's crime, and there's homelessness, and then there's uh, China, uh, and then there's Russia, and Ukraine, and, and Islamic terrorism, and corruption in government, and elections that are, that are crooked, and, but I can fix all that. <laughs> and we seem to have this delusional idea that we can fix things that we cannot fix. And I shared a stat with you uh, a couple of weeks ago in that talk where uh, the New York Times had an article and they were breaking out how man is just so prone to war. And in the last 3,400 years, humans have been at war for 3,132 of those years. Staggering. 92% of Earth's history plagued with big wars. These are not just small wars. These were big wars. And the reality is we can't bring in this love and peace that we say that we want to bring in. That's not what Christmas is about. The Christmas message is not that we can usher in peace and goodwill towards men. The Christmas message is actually a double-edged sword. 
And the Christmas message is actually terrifying news mixed with good news. I'll give you the terrifying news first. The Christmas message is this. We are incurably sinful and corrupt. It is horrifying. We are so corrupt we cannot govern ourselves. God himself must come in to save us from our vile sin. And God himself must rule and reign over us as king. Well, that is terrifying news, especially if you don't want to worship God. Uh, That's a bleak outlook. Uh, But Christmas is also a beautiful message full of hope and joy. For God became a man to lay down his life for us that he might save us from our sins. That is the whole purpose of Christmas. And Jesus forgives and cleanses sins to all those who will come to him as Lord. Uh, That's an amazing uh, Christmas message, man. That's what Christmas is all about. And if we come to him as Lord, not only does he cleanse us of sins, not only does he forgive, forgive us, but he does something even more spectacular. He clothes us with his righteousness. He imparts his righteousness to us as a free gift. So that we're no longer trying to be good people on our own. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And he, he adopts us as his own, as his sons and as his daughters of the kingdom. So that we become the children of God. Amazing, amazing blessings. The Christmas message is even though we're living in a dark and messed up world, the light has dawned and Jesus is the light that can save us if we turn to him. But what's amazing to consider, here Jesus, this God who becomes a man, to give us the best gift that we could ever have for Christmas, to give us the the light of the world. What's amazing is this sovereign king who created you, comes to the earth and says that his kingdom is non-compulsory. And what that means is he will not force you to worship him. He came the first time meek and mild to save the world from the sin, from sin. I want you to know, this is, don't be confused on this. Jesus did not come to this world to make this world a better place. Jesus came to this world to save us from our sins. He is coming the second time in power and in glory to judge all evil and to make the world a better place. But that is his second coming, not his first coming. And he did not come to make the world a better place. He came to save you and bring you into his kingdom. And if you don't receive him, you will not be in his kingdom. He made no bones about it. So his kingdom is non-compulsory. Jesus is God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet amazingly, he gives us free choice to make him Lord of our life or to live in rebellion to his lordship. And I'm amazed that he gives us that much freedom. I sometimes wish that he did not. He gives the atheist the freedom to go outside and say, smite me if you're real, God. 
He gives the atheists the freedom to make a satanic temple in our government places. These satanic temples are popping up all over the place. And sometimes I wish God would just wipe them out. But God doesn't. And the reason is because his kingdom is non-compulsory. Why is it non-compulsory? Because the only ones that he wants in his kingdom are those who understand his profound love for them and are so moved by his love that they say, I want to know a God who loves me like that. I want to worship a God who knows me like that. I want to trust my life to a God who loves me like that. And this is the gospel. This is the story of redemption. And your life is just a courtship to decide if you want to be with King Jesus. Who wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. Amazing to ponder. The Christmas message is that 2,000 years ago, God became a man, dwelt among us, uh, humbled himself, went to the cross to take the punishment of our sins upon his, old, his own shoulders to give us eternal life as a free gift. And the title of tonight's message, as I mentioned, is Behold Your King. Take a look at him. Take a look at him. He's amazing. He's amazing. And the main point of tonight's message, I want you to make sure you understand this. The main point of tonight's message is this. There cannot be two kings. We must surrender our will to Jesus, and it is by surrendering our will to Jesus, uh, to his lordship in our life, that he gives us eternal life and abundant life. That his light then begins to illuminate our path and show us how to walk in his ways in every relationship we have. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 39, uh, on your screens. Let's take a look. Let me hear you read this. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you understand what Jesus is saying in that? Jesus is saying, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you're going to lose everything. But if you forget about yourself and you live for, live for Jesus, you'll find life and you'll find life amazing. And so that's what he has laid out for us. Uh, this morning, we looked at a, uh, the, the message, Behold Your King, Part 1, and we saw how Jesus came into these people's lives and totally disrupted their lives. I'm talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Jesus came in and turned their world upside down. And Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were engaged. They had a wedding day planned. She had her dress picked out. She had her bridesmaids picked out. She had her flowers picked out. She had all her colors picked out. And Jesus came in and said, hey, that's not happening. Change of plans. When we make Jesus the Lord of our life, he does something far bigger in our life than we could ever imagine. And in our talk this morning, we looked at this. We have a small vision for our life. God has a big vision for our life. And we saw how Zacharias and Elizabeth's life, all this big vision of what God wanted to do through them. Joseph and Mary, this big vision of what God wanted to do for them. And so that was part one of the talk. In part two of the talk, we're going to see, once again, God's kingdom is non-compulsory. And he comes to another man, Herod, King Herod. And he gives him the choice. And we're going to see that Mary said, 
I am the servant of the Lord. Let your will be done in my life. Use my life, Lord. And look at the magnificent life she had. Herod is going to be a different answer. Herod, Jesus uh, came to him and he wanted to interrupt Herod's life just like he did Joseph and Mary's, but Herod refused to surrender his will to King Jesus. And let's find out why. Let's look at chapter 2 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we realize that your word is holy and sacred. And Lord, we're not. Lord, we're finite. We're sinful. Lord, we need you to illuminate your word to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to understand the beautiful plan of salvation that you've laid out for us and speak to our hearts individually. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born, after is a key word right there. Jesus is about one or two years old at this time. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Uh, These wise men were from Persia, ancient Babylon. And the Bible, by the way, if you're new with us tonight, the Bible, by the way, is an incredibly accurate book. The most historically, archaeologically accurate book ever. And it gives the, the, the names and the places and the rulers' names and all these things, and archaeology always finds this out to be 100% true. There was a King Herod. Uh, He's called Herod the Great. Uh, Anyway, verse 2. These wise men come from the east, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I want you to know something. Jesus didn't become king of the Jews. What question did they ask? The one who was what? Born king of the Jews. How does that work? Well, Jesus is king of the Jews by being the creator of the Jews. And Jesus is king of you by being the creator of you. And he didn't become king by his accomplishments. He became king because he was the creator of all. He's the one who was born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And so they're asking all the religious leaders in Jerusalem, like, hey, uh, where is this Messiah that was prophesied? Where is he? When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Interesting. Let's park it here for a moment. We have these wise men coming from the east. And as I mentioned, this was from uh, Persia, ancient Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, by the way. And they travel long and far to worship Jesus. I know at home you have your little nativity set, you got a little baby in there, and you got three wise men. Uh, I'm going to shatter all that tonight. Sorry about that. You can still have that. It's wonderful, but, uh, uh, but uh, that's not really what happened. Uh, these men that came, uh, these wise men, they traveled 1,400 miles. It would have taken three to four months to go from Persia to Jerusalem. Uh, they were not three dudes. They were dignitaries. They were powerful, educated men. And they would have traveled with a whole entire caravan. Their camels had tinted windows. Uh, they were uh, royalty. Uh, they, were, they would have brought a big treasury with all kinds of supplies and armed guards. And this is why they have King Herod's attention. 
They're not just three dudes who pulled into town. No, this is an entourage that came in that was very wealthy and very powerful. And they come in asking, we've seen signs in the heavens. Where is the Messiah that was going to be born? And you say, how do guys from Babylon, from Persia, know about the Messiah that's going to be born? Well, there was a man named Daniel who was a prophet in Jerusalem. And when he was a young man, a, the king of Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, he took Jerusalem and led them all into captivity. He conquered Jerusalem. And Daniel was one of those men who were taken captive into Babylon. And there in Babylon, because Daniel was a man who walked with God, uh, that means he had a lot of wisdom. And God raised him up and elevated him. And he became a very powerful ruler in the government at Babylon. He was an advisor to the king. And the king put him over all of his cabinet. And his cabinet was called Magi. And Daniel spent 60 years in Babylon teaching them about the true and living God. And you can read some of the prophecies that Daniel wrote about this Messiah. Like for uh, Daniel chapter 7, by the way, of powerful prophecy about Jesus' second coming. And Daniel would have taught them, these wise men, about the coming Messiah. Now, 600 years have passed. And these teachings are still there. And these wise men, led by a sign in the heavens, led by God in some way, understand that the Messiah has come, and they come to worship this Messiah. Very interesting, by the way, uh, that this, these royal dignitaries would come. Uh, I want you to think about how Jesus, how he has changed the world. Jesus is by far the greatest person in history. All of human history, by the way, points either before Jesus or after Jesus. He is the center pin of all history. How do you explain that? Not only is the central figure of all human history, the calendar is either before him or after him, he's also the central figure of the entire Bible. Your Bible's divided into two sections. What are they? Old Testament and New Testament. And it's all about before Jesus or after Jesus. He has divided human history. He has divided the Bible. He is the most influential person that ever lived by far. And the, the world has he's transformed the world. He's the most influential man. Even today, 2,000 years later, billions of followers celebrating his birth. How do you explain that? Billions of followers whose lives have been transformed by his words and by his teachings. His words and his teachings are the most studied words, the most studied teachings that have ever been. 
More books written about Jesus, more songs written about Jesus, more poetry written about Jesus, more paintings, more art, more sculptures about Jesus than any other person in the world, bar none, by far. Even the best architecture in the world has been done to the glory of Jesus. It's amazing to ponder just how magnificent and how significant he is this greatest person in history. How do you explain that? He was poor. He held no office. He put nobody on payroll. And yet he changed the world. And considering how music and art and architecture has been so inspired by Jesus, uh, my son sent me this meme uh, a couple days ago, and I thought I'd share it with you. Here it is. Uh, this is a, a picture of Michelangelo's uh, uh, picture of, uh, I always forget the name, was it? It's Piazza? Piazza? Pieta, thank you. Pieta, it's the Madonna and Jesus, right? And, and this is Michelangelo. He made that when he was 23 years old. It is a staggering piece of work. And at 23 years old, and why did he make it? Because he said, I want to glorify God in my work. And today we have modern art. This sold for $120,000. And look at the difference. Uh, I am so quirky and unique. And look what we do when it's all about us. And look what happens when we make our life about Jesus. Every nation that has uh, centered their, even, even, even remotely embraced his laws and his teachings. Every nation that has ever done so has flourished. Human rights have, have flourished and been elevated. Uh, wealth and, and property ownership and, and personal rights and individuality has all flourished and risen to the top. Any nation that even remotely embraces Christian truths. And the nations that go against them, oppression. Amazing to consider. I look at Jesus' life. And I look at the influence that he has. And it's staggering to ponder. King Herod, deeply troubled by Jesus... We read in verse 4 that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled. Uh, Herod was deeply troubled. Why was Herod so troubled? Well, the reason is, is because Herod knew the prophecies of the Messiah. Herod himself claimed to be a Jew. He was not a Jew. He was uh, from Edom, which is Esau. So uh, he's not from Abraham. Uh, but he claimed to be a Jew. He changed his genealogy and he claimed to be a Jew. And uh, he did so to propel his own kingdom. Uh, he was, uh, you know, the king of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he was afraid. He knew the prophecies that this Messiah would be the final king who would be the judge of all the earth. And he was deeply troubled because he did not want to lose what? His power. His kingdom. And he didn't want that. And Herod was brilliant, by the way. I don't want you to look at this guy and go, well, what a fool. No, he was brilliant. He reigned for 40 years. He was a military genius. 
He was politically astute. He really knew how to run things. He was a phenomenal builder. Uh, I love going to Jerusalem and looking at uh, to Israel and looking at all the things he built. Uh, you go to Caesarea Maritime right there on the Mediterranean coast, and he builds this giant stadium just overlooking the the ocean. It's just, it's gorgeous. And there at Caesarea Philippi, there's this giant hippodome, hip, hippodome that, that was there where they would do the chariot races and have all kinds of entertainment. He built a harbor and a seaport. Uh, he built Caesarea, uh, Caesarea, he built Masada, he built uh, the Herodian fortress, uh, all these things uh, that he built, master builder. We don't have time to talk about all that, but he was a brilliant builder. That's why they called him Herod the the Great. And he was deeply troubled, as gifted as he was, because he wanted no king over him. I want you to know, most unbelievers, most atheists are like Herod. It's not that they actually don't believe in God. It's that deep inside, they don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God and I was halfway intelligent, and there was a God, then I would have to what? Submit. Well, I have to admit, he's way better than me. I mean, look at the world he created, the universe he created. And so the Bible says, because the, the Bible says that they are willingly ignorant. Herod doesn't want to know about this king. Doesn't want to believe any of these things. And so he tries to eliminate God. Uh, and most atheists are trying to do the exact same thing, by the way. Herod's threatened by this power of this messianic reign, and so he's going to try to kill the Messiah. Look at verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ is the title for the Messiah. It means the anointed one. Verse 5. So they said to him the He goes, hey, religious leaders, look in all the prophecies. Tell me where the prophecies are, where the Messiah is going to be. And they look, and it's in Bethlehem of Judea. For this it is written by the prophet Micah uh, 400 years before Jesus came. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the the least among the rulers of, of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They say, Herod. This prophecy is about the Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Um, by the way, this prophecy, uh, if you look at it in Micah, it shows that this ruler is an everlasting ruler, a ruler from eternity past. Uh, it says that he is God. Verse 7, uh, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, hey, dignitaries, come have a meeting with me. He secretly called them to determine from them what time the star appeared. Why does he want to know? Hey, when did you guys first see this star? And how long have you been traveling? And how long was your preparation for this trip? And when did that... Why does he want to know all that? So he can eliminate this child. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring him back, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. Herod used religion just as a tool. And this was, this, what would his worship be? Murder. Herod was a murderer, by the way. He murdered his own wife. 
He murdered his three sons. Uh, he murdered anyone that threatened his kingdom. And Jesus came to save Herod. And here he is wanting to murder the Savior. <clears throat> Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, a star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with it uh, with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, uh, you can see it's not in a manger. This is in the house. Uh, this is, again, Jesus, one or two years old here. They come into the house and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened up their treasuries, they presented gifts to him. And here we see the sovereignty of God in these gifts. Take a look at these gifts. They presented gold. Gold was a perfect gift for a king. It's a kingly gift. It's a prophetic gift. They gave, they gave him frankincense. Frankincense is a perfect gift for a priest. Frankincense was used to burn at the altar of incense inside the temple. Gold for a king. Frankincense, a perfect gift for a priest. And look at this. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Do you know what myrrh was? Myrrh was a cheap perfume that was used for embalming. A perfect gift for a Messiah who came to die on the cross for our sins. Very prophetic. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country uh, another way. Uh, here's the story. It's just astonishing what's happening. We look at Jesus and he's at, Beth, at Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a poor, underprivileged, impoverished town with high poverty levels. It was basically a, a poor hood. It was definitely not the place for kings. Definitely not the place for royalty. And certainly not the place for the Messiah. God could have chosen anywhere to be born. I personally probably would have chose Maui. <laughs> maybe Fiji. Uh, I would not choose Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a dumpy, dirty, poor little town. Why did the sovereign God choose to come into this world at Bethlehem? Well, God is trying to teach us something. God is teaching us the values of his kingdom. And the values of his kingdom are selflessness. Selflessness is a value of God's kingdom. God works so different than you and I. God is selfless. We are selfish. But God himself is selfless. And God's kingdom is a selfless kingdom. And uh, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem so that all could freely come to him. Kings, wealthy wise men, and outcasts could easily come. If the Messiah was born in a king's castle, only royalty could come to him. If the Messiah was born, born in the, the Greek Areopagus, where all the philosophers would gather and pontificate, then only the philosophers could come to him. 
If the Messiah was born in the palace, only the wealthy could come to him. If he was born in the temple, only the high priest could come to him. But if he was born in Bethlehem, all could come to him. Behold your king. This is how he works. He is a selfless king. He has selfless values. And being born in Bethlehem would allow the wealthy, the educated, the wise men, the poor, the homeless, the prostitutes, the misfits, all to come to him. Even the murderers could come and change their life before him. All repentant sinners are welcome in the kingdom, uh, in God's kingdom, uh, if we come to him through Jesus. Uh, Amazing king, an amazing king. God's kingdom is a selfless kingdom. By the way, when uh, God gives gifts, he does it very differently than how we give gifts. Tomorrow morning, we'll exchange our gifts and we'll say, this is for you. Uh, It's a shirt. I hope you love it. And this is for you. It's a purse. I hope you love it. And uh, it's all for you. When God gives gifts, he does it entirely different. Do you know how God, does get, God, how God gives gifts? He says, Drake, here's a gift. It's leadership and charisma. It's for everybody else. Here's a gift. It's compassion. It's for everybody else. Here's a gift. You're a teacher. It's for everybody else. This is how God gives gifts because his kingdom is selfless. And the moment that we try to say mine or make the gifts he gives us about our glory, they disappear in our hands. There is no mine in his kingdom. And how amazing if Herod would have just let go of his hands. What could have happened in his life? What must the wise men have thought as they traveled 1,400 miles to worship this messianic king? And when they finally arrive, there's no lines waiting to get to him. There's no worshipers there worshiping him. And they come and he's in a dirt poor town, living in a dirt poor house. And no doubt they wondered, who is this king? So powerful that even the stars in the heavens announce his birth. So powerful that prophecies for centuries have been foretold about him. And yet so meek that he dwells with the poor. Who is this king? And of all of him, they worship him as the Messiah. The selfless humility of God is astonishing. Consider the incarnation. And behold your king. And may we learn from him. King Herod refused to humble himself to worship Jesus as his Lord. Why? Why? Because he did not want to lose his own kingdom. He was afraid that he would lose the throne of his own life. And he would. He would. Because when you come to Jesus... There can only be one king. Mary, when Jesus entered into her life, she had to give up sovereignty of her life. No, Mary, your wedding's not happening. I've got different plans for you. But as I shared with you this morning, our vision for our life is very small. 
God's vision for our life is very big. What if Herod would have come to God and said, hey, I need a savior. I'm a murderer. I need to be forgiven. I wonder how God would have used him in the story. Instead, we will read. You can look on. You can look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 by, 19, by the way. Verse 19. Now when Herod was what? Dead. Missed his opportunity. Missed his opportunity. He would not surrender because he didn't want to let go of his pathetic little kingdom. I want you to know in every heart there is a little King Herod. You have one and I have one. A little King Herod that says we don't want to serve God. We don't want to be moral. We don't want to love our neighbor. We don't want to be selfless. In fact, we want everybody to serve us. And we're threatened by anything that challenges us as the captain of our own destiny. And so we deny the lordship of Jesus. And what a tragic mistake that would be. Here's the thesis question that we must all ask ourselves. Is Jesus the king of my life? He will take no other position. He won't just be your friend. He won't just be your savior. He won't just be your advisor. He is either your Lord or he's not in your life. You're not in his kingdom. And what amazes me is that his kingdom is not compulsory. He gives us that choice. Herod did not choose wisely. Man, may we be wise. Ask yourself, do I listen to his words? Do I walk in his path? Do I try to obey him? Do I run to him every time I sin? And I sin a lot. I want you to know, uh, being a Christian does not mean you become sinless. It means that every time you mess up, you just quickly go to the fountain of grace and say, Lord, I've messed up once again. Please forgive me. And you know what happens? His mercies are new morning by morning every single day. I'm amazed at how much he forgives me. And you know what that does for me? It brings his influence into my life so that when a friend wrongs me, no big deal. And I begin to be transformed and I look more like him. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.